Duck Pond Wall, a show here on WEHCFM 90.7, where we get to talk with a graduate of Emory and Henry about what they're working on. I am your host, Monica Hoyle. I'm the alumni director of the college, and it is my honor to get to have with us today Corey Davis, Emory and Henry class of 2020. How you doing, Corey? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Monica? I'm doing terrific, and I've enjoyed following you on Facebook, but it's way more fun to see you in person. So thanks for being with me today. It's my pleasure. Tell me this, for starters, did you ever sit on the duck pond wall and talk with friends? Yes. I mean, my first few years was when it wasn't renovated, but when the duck pond was renovated, that was where my friends and I would sit. And um, for one of my English classes with Dr. Mitchell, we would sit near the gazebo and do work. So, Oh, that's kind of nice. What did you have Dr. Mitchell for? Was it like a poetry class? Uh, haiku. Haiku. Do you still hmm. haiku when you're walking around? No. You don't? No. <laughs> like she haikued me out of haikuing. <laughs> Let's tell everybody um, what it is that you're working on. You're UNC Chapel Hill in a graduate program. First of all, tell us what the program is, and then let's talk about your research. Uh, So the program I am in is the Analytical Chemistry PhD program at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. All right. So what was your, was your undergrad major in chemistry? It was. I got a BA in chemistry with a minor in English literature. Well, then you should still be writing haikus in your head. Uh, I prefer prose more. So I enjoyed one of two of my favorite classes were major British writers with Dr. Chamberlain. And then the foundational English class that Dr. Mitchell taught where we learned the different critical lenses to approach literature. Those are my two favorite. You're doing this PhD program. How much more do you have before your Dr. Corey Davis? That's the funny thing about the PhD programs. It's it's a coordination between you setting your own schedule and time and coordinating with your advisor about when you want to defend. But at least for STEM, it also revolves around and is dependent on your experiments. So right now, I'm predicted to defend by December of 2025. But that'll depend on if my experiments go well and X, Y, and Z. <laughs> Whether you have to redo some things, maybe? Yeah. Um, the average for chemistry students at Chapel Hill is between five to six years. So I'm in the range. Golly, that's kind of a long program. Yeah, it's because for our, for most chemistry, PH, well, for, yeah, for the vast majority of chemistry PhD programs, uh, you can jump straight into the PhD and not have to do a master's. So I'm doing all of it in one. Did it make it harder or did you feel like that you were, you know, ready to jump in? No, I was ready to jump in. Um, Dr. Hainsworth and I had talked about it when I was in the fall of my junior year and that was what I really wanted to do. Wow. Okay. So you had a plan going early. Yeah, I had a plan since freshman year of undergrad. I kind of knew what I wanted. <laughs> Are you that guy? Are you that kid who's like, nope, I got it. I'm in kindergarten and I know what I'm going to be. No, um, I knew going into middle school that I was going to go for the advanced technical diploma in high school. And I knew when I entered high school that I was just going to 
take all the advanced classes and then go to college. But I didn't know that I wanted to do chemistry until orientation week because Dr. Lane, Dr. Michael Lane was the one who was in charge of the chemistry booth and he really sold me on <laughs> chemistry. Somewhere there's a faculty member going, oh my goodness, people actually pay attention to those things. Yes, I did. <laughs> what did he say that sold you on it? Do you remember? I mean... I wanted a court, like I wanted a degree that was going to be tough, that was going to push my critical thinking skills and allow me to have creativity and fun. And it seemed that chemistry fit all of those parameters because of the independent research that I could do on top of the rigor of the coursework. So it enticed me. I, I don't think I've ever had anybody say to say that exact sentence to me. And I'm really intrigued by that, though, that you, you're like, I wanted it to be hard. I wanted it to push me. Mm -hmm. Why did you end up at Emory and Henry? So I had a wonderful teacher at my school. We were the smallest school in the county. But what was amazing about our school which we ended up winning a Blue Ribbon Award, was our academics. So our teachers were really passionate about teaching, and a lot of them had been at the school for over a decade. So quite experienced. And one of them, one of my most favorite teachers, um, Mrs. McDonald, she is an alumni of Emory and & Henry. And my freshman year, when I took French with her, she always harped and bragged about Emory and Henry and how great of an experience she had, how she was able to like double major and participate in all these extracurricular activities and how small her classes were and how much one-on-one -on -one attention she had with the faculty and how she got to know them on like a close basis and how fun of an experience she had. And so she helped me my junior, senior year apply to Evering Henry College and she helped me navigate the process. Note to self, write a thank you note to Mrs. McDonald. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to high school? Grew up in um, Midwest Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley in, in Augusta County. Um, I went to Stanton. That, that was where I, I lived for most of my life. I, I went to a high school called Riverheads. Riverheads. All right. Uh, I considered Virginia Tech, University of Mary Washington, UVA, and a community college. So was it Mrs. McDonald's harping, as you called it, that really put you over the edge on choosing Emory and Henry? That and the class sizes. Yeah. Let's talk about your work at UNC Chapel Hill just a little bit. What What is your research on? Because you just got a big honking award, and we're going to get to that in a second. But let's talk about what you're working on. My work is primarily focused on studying a really small uh, step in a mechanism known as DNA mismatch repair. DNA so, mismatch repair. Yeah, in general biology, students learn that th we have um, a mechanism known as DNA replication, which is responsible for creating our DNA. And in DNA replication, students are often told that there are polymerases that make the DNA, and they also check the DNA to see if it has mistakes. But as professors will harp on, even though they correct these mistakes, they can still leave behind some. And it wasn't until my lab, until I joined my, my lab, that I learned that there's a mechanism that can fix these mistakes that the polymerases leave behind, and it's known as DNA mismatch repair. And this mechanism happens really fast, 
and it's comprised of a lot of different proteins that work together to fix the mistakes. And there's various people in my lab who study different proteins in this big mechanism. Um, but I am really focused on the protein that removes the mistakes. Um, and that's what, in biology, that's what we call an exonuclease. And the exonuclease that I'm studying is the only known exonuclease in this process. Um, and so that's really interesting. And then how it goes about removing the DNA is also of interest in my research. Um, and so I've been studying that for the past year and a half because I switched projects halfway through my PhD. I want to make sure I understand the word. Are you saying prelim race? Spell that for me. P-O-L-Y-M-E-R-A-S-E. -E. Yeah, I was not even close. Okay, thank you. And so help me understand when you say it fixes mistakes in the DNA, what do you consider like a mistake? DNA is, is made up of bases. So think of um, adenines, guanines, cytosines, thymines. They are paired to a complementary base. And so, for example, um, guanine pairs well with the cysteine. And so um, um, what we call a mismatch is like if you have a guanine paired to like a thymine, so bases that aren't compatible, or um, the polymerase can not incorporate um, a base. So it will put in a base and then leave an empty space and then continue and add more nucleotides. So you have a base, a gap, and then a base, and then that's a problem. Or it can make too many. So it could make a base, add in an extra base on top of the base, and then that's what we call a bulge. And then it will keep going. And sometimes it won't recognize that because it's having to move really quickly because of how many, how much like our DNA is large. We have like billions of nucleotides. So in a single cell, it's a lot. So what does that mean in terms of real world outcomes? Like if you have a mistake in your DNA, do you just not exist or do you have illness no. or? So a lot of these mistakes can often result in cancer. And a big thing that our lab cares about is so the proteins that fix the mistakes that these polymerases leave behind, the mismatch pair proteins, if there's any type of malfunction in those mismatch pair proteins, this can result in pretty deleterious cancers, primarily an umbrella one called Lynch syndrome, which is, it makes patients who have this syndrome 80% more susceptible to getting um, sporadic and colorectal cancers. And so our lab cares about this mechanism because if we can better understand the proteins and what can go wrong with them, then you can inevitably provide better therapeutics for patients who have this. Has there been research on this particular element of DNA mismatch for a long time? In the realm of science, it's relatively new. It's been studied since the 80s and 90s. For example, my advisor is on the forefront of this research, and she picked it up in the late 90s, and I want to say early 2000s. So 
while there is a lot of research on this mechanism, there's still a lot more to be discovered because um, there's a lot we don't know. I want to remind everyone we're speaking today with Corey Davis, who is a grad student at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, Emory Henry class of 2020, and he just won a big award for some research he's doing, and we're trying to sort of get at the heart of the research before we talk about the, the award. You know, I interviewed someone not too long ago about he's doing cancer research in England, and we talked about the fact that it feels like maybe there's a different sort of pace of the kind of discoveries that are being made. And I mean, like the sorts of things that we're figuring out seem to be maybe accelerating a little bit. Do you kind of find that to be so? I think so. I think in the realm of discovering, um, making new discoveries in the realm of cancer research, it's moving quite quickly from what I can see in the literature. However, with my with my work, that tends to not be the case because my research is at the intersection of multiple disciplinary studies. So it doesn't seem to be going as fast as what I'm seeing in the literature. Is that frustrating or exciting? Uh, Both. It's exhilarating when I get a complex biological um, experiment to work. It's exhausting when you realize you spent a month doing it. (laughs) So It seems like in some ways we're paying more attention to how to prevent the cancer from happening in the first place as opposed to just how to treat the cancer once you have it. Is that kind of what your your work is focused on? Essentially, yes. If people have malfunctions in these proteins, it doesn't inherently mean that they're going to automatically get the cancer. If we can target the malfunctions in these proteins early, Um, Before they develop any cancer, that's great. And hopefully several decades from now, we'll know mechanistically how to target the malfunctions in these proteins to prevent them from developing cancers. But as of right now, we don't have a great understanding. So we can't really treat any malfunctions in in these proteins quite early on. But that would be the idea in the near future. Wow. So mm-hmm. are there a lot of people in your lab working on the same problem? Uh, overall, yes. Yeah. So everyone in my lab is doing research that's going to push the envelope on better therapeutics for um, malfunctions in DNA mismatch repair. Um, but we're coming at it from different angles. So your angle must be kind of special because you just won a big award, Corey Davis. <laughs> it, it, it is, yeah. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about the award and, and exactly what it was for. So the award I applied for back in October. So I work in a lab space. It's a collaborative workspace. So I work in a really fancy glass building. <laughs> I, I love it because... It, there's so much sunlight every morning I come in. It's great for plants because I love plants. But um, we have a massive lab space that's split into different open sections with different labs, but all of us work together. So not only is there my lab, but there's three other labs in my lab space that we all work together and share the space. And there were two female graduate students last year who applied and won for this American Chemical Society like um, Women Award. And I was curious, well, is there an award for anyone who identifies in the LGBTQ community? 
And last year there wasn't. American Chemical Society has an LGBTQ subdivision, um, but there was really no award that distinguished people in this community that I'm in. However, this year they announced that they were partnering with Merck to, which is a massive pharmaceutical company for those who don't know, um, that was partnering with ACS this year to recognize STEM individuals who also identify as LGBTQ plus. And so I thought it would be advantageous to apply. Um, all I needed to do was provide a CV, emphasize what my research is about, and then get a letter of rec. And so of all the people applying nationally, they gave six awards. Six? Yeah. From across the so, entire country of these United States. Yes. That is wicked cool. Well, congratulations. That first of all, Thank that you. is amazing. And <laughs> and also besides the the honor and the prestige, you know, this is me being nosy. Does it also come with like, you know, some research money or something like that? For this award, they are holding a symposium at an American Chemical Society national meeting that's occurring in the spring. This subdivision symposium is only for the LGBTQ subdivision of ACS. And so we're going to gather as a community and the six of us who won this award are going to present to this LGBTQ community of scientists and have insightful conversations about our research and what the other people in this community are doing. And it's going to facilitate what I think are going to be interesting conversations. But they give us $1,500 to essentially travel to where this conference is at New Orleans. And so I'm not going to have to worry about applying for a travel grant at my school or anything like that. They just give me the money so I can travel there and talk about my research. And then afterwards, they're going to pair me with a scientist who works at Merck to help me navigate networking with industry and finding a job. Holy cow. Well, that's worth the price of admission right there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, yeah. just to make sure I understand, when you say ACS, you mean the American Chemical Society? Yes. Because in my head, I went to American Cancer Society, and I just wanted to make sure I had the right ones. Are you will, willing to talk a little bit about why this is important to you as a professional to network with other scientists in the LGBTQ plus community? Um, I'm thinking about, for instance, things that I've heard over the years about even like women in the sciences and how, you know, there's an extra hurdle there to get past some of the gender issues and that kind of thing. Does it does it help you as a professional to get to meet other folks in your community who are succeeding and doing well here? Yes, because um, how I grew up, identifying in the LGBTQ plus community was often stigmatized. Um, and so I grew up with this innate fear and shame of being part of the community. And it wasn't until I came to Amory where I was able to be immersed in a small um, STEM cohort with 
um, very, very, very open and inclusive and supportive chemistry faculty that helped me thrive. And they really helped foster my critical thinking capabilities. And they helped me basically find myself while also engaging in my passion for science. And so I found early on in undergrad that it was really important for me to break that mold from K through 12 um, of the fear and the shame. And so I did that by connecting with fellow scientists who both identified in my community and who didn't because often they were allies. So, yes. Well, I think that's terrific. And I'm really tickled that you've that you've managed to find some people who recognize you for the for the talented scientist you are, but also Mm -hmm. a a group of people that you can um, network with. Mm -hmm. What is it you're thinking about Mm -hmm. doing once you graduate? Once I graduate, I would there's two main tracks. There's various tracks that you can do with a PhD in chemistry, but more often than not, most individuals with a PhD in chemistry will either go one of two routes. So they'll either go into industry or they will go into academia. So think professors at an R1 university. So these are going to be professors who do what the chemistry faculty at Emory and Henry do, but What they're going to be doing is not just teaching. They're going to be in charge of an entire lab that's going to facilitate and push the envelope of a certain field of research. And they're going to delegate research responsibilities among multiple graduate students while also teaching. And so often students with a PhD in chem will either go that route or they'll go straight into working. Um, in industry. And for me, I'm leaning towards industry where I want to work in a really established, stable, big chemical company where I would like to be a scientist, where I would be helping study their products. And as a scientist, I would be helping not only improve those products, so consumers want to keep using them, but I could also be managing a team of scientists to facilitate meaningful conversations about the things that we use every day. It's not like you haven't set your schedule since, you know, since like 11th grade or something crazy. Yeah. So I'm I'm not concerned about you having a plan that you're going to follow up on. You said you wanted conversations about why we use the products we use. I was interested by the fact that you wanted to take sort of a philosophical approach to chemistry. You know, those two things don't always go hand in hand. What What is your thinking process on that that makes you think, you know, not only do we need to know how it works, we need to know why we're using it or if we should be using it or whatever that conversation is. Because I value effective communication, especially effectively communicating science, not only to the peers in my community, but outside. And that primarily stems from me dabbling with English literature in my undergrad. I got to see that there can be a disparity in science communication. and. I really think that that's crucial if we're going to really, for example, develop these products for consumers. It's something we need to talk about. And so 
that's why I value it so much. Last question. Was there something at Emory & Henry that really seems to follow you um, as you're maneuvering all this cool work in graduate school? Three things. The first thing that stuck with me is because of how small Emory & Henry was, I got to make really close friendships and all of the friendships that I made ended up resulting in them becoming my closest, if not bestest friends. And we still maintain constant communication, not only through texting, but we video chat probably at least once a week. And that has been very crucial for my success in graduate school. It's succeeding in graduate school like if you're going for a phd especially when the pandemic hit <laughs> it's not only critical to you know have the dedication and the willpower but it's also critical to have a good support system and emory and henry facilitated that like literally the orientation week that was where i formed four of my best friends uh, the second thing that stuck with me was the chemistry faculty they were super supportive of me. And it was, for example, my advisor, Dr. Hainsworth, it was through her help that I was able to basically find my sense of self and really discover my passion for STEM. And that was what allowed me to participate in a research experience for undergraduates my sophomore year of undergrad, where I performed research at Virginia Tech. It was through her help that I was able to, you know, shoot for the stars and apply for these dream schools during a pandemic. That is a big takeaway that stuck with me was how supportive the, the faculty were and how supportive my advisor was and how willing she was to meet with me constantly on any time <laughs> that I was stressed and anxious. So that has stuck with me like ever since was to like not be afraid to do what's best for me and constantly communicate. Number three would be the English literature faculty, because if it wasn't for having Dr. Mitchell, Dr. Chamberlain help me develop my English communication skills, I don't think I'd be thriving when it comes to writing papers, when it comes to communicating my research to my advisor. They really gave me an edge in graduate school in terms of that, because I didn't realize that it takes true skill to communicate what you're doing well and do it in a manner that everyone can understand. For example, I got distinguished for my research seminar for doing an, a phenomenal job for communicating my science to the entire division. That wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't been able to hone that skill at Emory. And then also having major British writers during the pandemic was like critical for my success between senior year, pandemic, first year of graduate school, because I took no break. And so having that fun, like taking something that I found enjoyable and pleasurable was really critical for my success. So those of you out there, it's really important to not only do what's good for advancing your career, but like do things that you like you enjoy. Corey Davis, Emory and Henry class of 2020. Congratulations on your award and all your great research. And thank you so much for being with us today on the Duck Pond Wall. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for being with us today. Please stay tuned to WEHCFM. This is the voice of Southwest Virginia. Mm -hmm.